Traders Point. Welcome. How you guys doing? Hey, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors around here. And to everyone at the campuses and watching online, welcome. Honored that you would carve out some time and you're here with us today. Excited for today because we're kicking off a brand new series of messages called Summer in the Psalms, which standing alone, it just sounds like a dope vacation spot, doesn't it? That you would hear about from like, that's where the Kardashians are going this year. We're going to spend the summer in the Psalms. But for us, we're going to take a little bit of a different look at what that means to spend a summer in the Psalms. And we're going to dive into a very unique book of the Bible. Uh, the Psalms. And what makes it stand out from the rest of the Bible is that most of the Bible, it's written from the vantage point of, hey, this is what God wants us to know. It's written from that vantage point. So it's God telling us, hey, I want you to do this. Hey, hey, stop doing that. Please put that down. Don't do that ever again. It's God making promises, God making himself known to us. Now, what's different about the Psalms is that vantage point, because instead of God's words to us, the Psalms work through this idea of what does it look like for us to talk to God? What does it look like for humans to have a conversation with the creator of the universe? And there's 150 of these, pretty short in nature, most of them. But what they do is they show us what it looks like to communicate with God across the emotional spectrum. So you'll see if you open one of these up, maybe it's one that's just like complete joy all the way to depression and everything in between. And why we think this is helpful is because if you're here today and you wouldn't say that you believe really in God all the way, it's hard for you to think that there's a God that speaks to humans you can get behind the idea of humans wanting to talk to God, right? Like that's somewhere you can start because even if you don't believe in God, you still find yourself praying. I know before I believed in God, I found myself doing it. You say a prayer and you're like, I don't even, I feel silly. Why did I even do that? I'm praying to a God I don't even believe in, but we hope this will be the first step. And for all of us, whether you've been with Jesus for a couple days or 50 years, our hope is that as we walk through the Psalms, that it will grow our relationship with Jesus. Because as wild as it sounds, the God of this universe doesn't just want a surface level relationship with us. Which that's where a lot of us get to though when we talk to God, because once you get past like uh, help and thank you, the words get really limited. But our hope is that if we study the Psalms, it almost gives us permission to get real with God. It gives us a vocabulary to use as we start into this relationship and get deeper with Jesus. And that's what we're going to be seeing as we dive into the psalm today. It is Psalm 25. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and get there. But Psalm 25, it picks up right there, what we're talking about of really going through emotions, really what it looks like to talk to God no matter the circumstance. And Psalm 25, it's written by a guy named David, um, King David, put some respect on his name. He's kind of a, a big deal, all right? And when we pick up with him in Psalm 25, many think that he wrote this towards the end of his life. So he has seen it all. My man has a lot of highlights, a lot of things that he can look back on his life and be proud of, but he also has some lowlights, some things that he doesn't want to mention, but things that are still haunting him till this day. And what we're going to pick up with him in, in Psalm 25 is he's on the verge of experiencing something that we've all experienced at one time or another. And maybe you're wrestling with it right now, and it's shame. 
So with all that said, that's the setup, Psalm 25. Look at what David says right off of the bat. David says, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame. Here it is. Nor let my enemies triumph over me. No, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. But shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Now we see right away that there is a battle, right? So with these real things that are going on in David's life, he has these enemies that are surrounding him. He doesn't know how this thing is going to play out. And he feels the shame just like welling up with inside him. And he's calling out to God. He's saying, God, take this shame. Don't let it overtake me. Let me trust in you. And we see right away just how heavy of an emotion shame is. I think it's a lot bigger and it's a lot stronger than we give it credit for because a lot of times people just kind of use shame interchangeably for like a word like humiliation. Like you are humiliated, you, you have shame. But I think there's a big difference. And let me kind of try to paint the picture for you. Uh, and lucky for you guys, I have been humiliated a lot in my life. So I have a, I have a lot to go off of. And some of you are looking up here like, yeah, we can see that. You, you look like you do dumb stuff. Uh, you're not wrong. Um, but when I was 18, I borrowed my parents' car. All great stories begin when, when I was 18, I borrowed my parents' car. But I borrowed their car to go get a haircut. And the only condition of me using their car was that before I came home, I had to return a movie to Blockbuster. No big deal, all right? So I go and get my haircut. I'm swinging back around. I'm going to stop in at Blockbuster and drop this movie off. And for those of you in the room that keep hearing a word you don't know, Blockbuster, all right? <laughs> Let me talk you through it. It was incredible. It was a time in life. If you can picture a red box that you can walk inside, like that's... That's all you really need to know. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a building there. And I pull in, and historically, this has not always been the case, but at, in this season, Blockbuster is doing very well. So all of the parking spots are filled. There is one that is open, though. It's right there at the front. It's right there by the drop box where I'm going to put the movie. Um, the only thing is it's a handicapped spot. But I think, no big deal. I'm not going to be here long. I'm just going to jump in, jump out, drop the movie off, and be gone before anyone notices Boy, was I wrong, all right? So I jump out, um, or I pull into the, into the parking lot, and the movie is in the back seat. So as I reach back to grab the movie, I stretch myself all the way out, and as I do, my foot comes off the brake a little bit. You don't even know. <laughs> and as my foot comes off the brake, I feel the car just slightly move forward which tells me I did not put this car in park, all right? No big deal though, I'm just gonna hit the brake, it'll all be done, so I'm still reaching to grab the movie, I go to hit the brake and my foot slips. You ever slipped? I slipped, all right? And if you know anything about cars, you know that right next to the brake is the gas, right? And if you know anything about Blockbuster, the front of these buildings are all glass. So, Go back with me. I'm reaching for the movie. I don't get the movie. I get the gas. I'm flying through, crashing through the glass like I'm in some action movie. I'm completely inside the blockbuster before the front desk manages to stop me. This is embarrassing, okay? In the next few hours, I had to tell over 
I had to tell this story over and over again to the Blockbuster employees, to the police officers, to the ambulance, to over and over. Yes, I did. I drove the car. That was me. I did that. That was humiliating, right? And if it would have ended there, that would have been the end of it. But I remember as the night was getting to, towards an end, they had actually had to tow my car outside of the Blockbuster, and it's parked now. I say my goodbyes to everyone, see you guys soon, uh, and I go and get the car to drive home. They're still gonna let me drive home. They don't care. Um, so I get in the car, and before I go, I look in the back seat. The movie is still there. I learned my lesson though. I get out of the car, I open the door, I take the movie, and this is where it changed. From just being humiliated to shame. It was my walk of shame from the car back into Blockbuster. I'm walking on glass that I created. I'm walking through a car-shaped hole that I created. The only thing that I can see is what I've done and how bad I've messed this thing up. And it only got worse. Shame just began to fill every single part of me. And there was one part of the day that I could not shake. And it was what happened the moments after I went crashing through the glass. Like I said, the only thing that stopped me was the front counter. And I remember as I went through, looking at the front counter and realizing what had just happened, and my, the immediate thoughts I had of how crazy this is, that I could have just possibly run over someone, I could have hurt someone, I could have killed someone. My gut response, my instincts at that point were not to get out of the car to see if everyone was okay, to check on, to help. My gut response, my split second judgment, I need to put this car in reverse and get out of here as soon as I can. And I remember getting home and just those thoughts crashing over me and just constantly taking away of everything that I thought I was, the person I thought I had become, and I was just dismantled. Like, who am I? What is wrong with me? Why am I so messed up? And it took me a while to shake that shame. And I think we've all had those walks of shame. Chances are it didn't come after you ran your car through a blockbuster. Um, but maybe yours came, and it comes pretty often, after you have a conversation with someone and they say, hey, how's your marriage going? And you have to let them know in that moment that you don't have a marriage anymore, that you got a divorce. And as you walk back away, that, that shame just begins to overtake you. Or maybe your walk of shame, that it comes whenever you see that house or you're remembered of that night or that relationship. Maybe if your walk of shame comes welling up inside you whenever you think about your last day on the job. How you gave your life to this place. You worked here for years. You gave them your best and still one day you were met with, that's, that's all we need from you. And as you carried your box of personal belongings all the way back to the car, you walked in shame. And Brene Brown, who researched shame for years, she defines shame like this. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed, therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. Like that's where I was in that moment, in that night, in the days to come for a long time. It was this idea, shame, full-blown shame reduces us to this. I am the worst thing that I've ever done or that has been done to me. 
And it's so strong and it's so overwhelming that it begins to take us away from every other thing that we want to do. And this is where David is. When David is reading Psalm 25, he is surrounded on all fronts. He's got enemies everywhere. And he's living his life under this model that if God leads out, he's going to be okay. If God protects him, he'll be okay. But that is the only way. But here he is in this moment of vulnerability starting to question, starting to fear. And he needs to do something to deal with this shame because he has these two tapes playing in his mind. The first one, that shame is whispering in his ear, saying that, no, no, you are unworthy. You will never be loved. You are too flawed. Look at your life. Look at how bad you've messed up. And then he has God in the other side whispering to him, saying, no, 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 don't believe that for a second. You know who you are. You are loved. You know that I've always been here. You know that I will protect you. You know that I would never leave you. But this just shows us how strong of an emotion shame is. And maybe you've, you're walking in it right now and you know exactly what this is like when those tapes are going in your head. And it's because we can see all the things that we've done and they're magnified. You ever been there? Where you seem to be going through a season where everything that could, be, go, could go wrong is going wrong. Everyone that could attack you is. Family situations, work situations, friends situations, and it's all facing you. And you sit back and you say, you do the math. What's the common denominator? It's me. I must be the problem. And we become the shame that we carry unless unless we let God intervene, unless we let God do what only God can do. And as David's working through all of this, he has this moment of clarity. As he's wrestling through shame, he, he says it right here in these first few verses. And I think it's what shifts everything. It's what changes the conversation and changes what we read next. But he has this moment. He says, no, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. No one who hopes in you, God, will ever be put to shame. And he has this moment of clarity where God's wisdom, God's voice is taking over and shame begins to shrink back. And as this moment of clarity comes, what David is gonna do in the rest of this, in the rest of this psalm is show us what it looks like to walk out of shame and to walk in our identity in Christ, to walk in what only God can give us. And I love the way he kicks things off Keep reading with me in the psalm. David says, show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. I love this. David's brought to this spot where he's wrestling with shame. He has this moment of clarity where he says, no, 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 what am I thinking? No one who hopes in God will ever be put to shame. And then he goes to battle. And we see right away that this isn't a battle that David can just do by himself. Because the first thing that he does is calls out to God and says, I can't do this on my own. Teach me your way. Show me the path that you have before me. God, walk me out of this shame. And why can't he deal with shame on his own? And why can't we? It's because that's what Psalm 14 would say is that we are corrupt. Romans would go on to say that there is nothing good that lives within us. And as shame begins to work through it, everything that it touches, it begins to corrupt. 
The one little thing becomes not so little anymore. Then it's really big. And then it magnifies. Then it becomes our identity. And we become the worst thing that we've ever done or that has been done to us. But David says, no. That's not going to be the case for me because, God, I'm going to beg you. I'm going to look to you for you to lead me out of this. And this first part here also shows us why we have to fight shame, why we can't fight it alone, but why we can't stand back and just hope that it goes away because shame is so strong and it's so powerful that it will, it will make it almost impossible to be obedient to God. Because every time God tries to lead you, Every time God shows you that he wants you to go in this direction, every time you get a conviction to do this and you feel it for a second, you're like, I'm going to do it. But then shame grabs you by the back of your neck and says, are you crazy? You can't do that. You can't be used in that way. Do you, know, do you not remember who you are? Do you not remember your past? Do you not remember your last night? No, no, no. Take a seat. You can't do that. And that's why shame left unaddressed makes it even hard to talk to God. And maybe that's where you are right now. That's that fear that keeps so many of us from opening up to God and having a talk, to having a conversation. Because we think if we are completely vulnerable, if we shared with God everything, there is no way that he would accept us. He would have to reject us at that point. But David here shows that it's not about what we've done, but it's about who God is, that no one who hopes in him will be put to shame. Come on. And that's why I love what David does next. He's wrestling with this, the same as a lot of us are wrestling with it right now. And he's saying, no, no, I'm gonna hope in you. I'm gonna trust in you. And then he shows us. He shows us what it looks like to battle shame in the way that God wants us to, what it looks like to take our shame to God and what he does with it. Look at this in the next few verses. David says, remember, Lord, remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. No, according to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Here it is. David lays it out. You want to fight shame? It starts with remembering and remembering the right things. He gives us like this remember sandwich through these next few verses, if you noticed it. He says, remember this, your great mercy and love. Don't remember this, which is the playground of shame, the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. He says, no, no. Instead, remember me according to your love, for you, Lord, are God. And this is so important here because when shame comes, it reminds us and it tries to steal our identity. It tries to put us into submission to admit to ourselves that we are the worst thing that we have ever done. But that's not what David is doing here. He says, no, that won't be the case. Don't remember that but instead remember me according to your love and your mercy. Remember me in light of that. Now, why would David say this? Why would he ask God to remember something? It's not like God could forget. It's not like God was like, oh, I forgot to be loving today or I forgot to be merciful today. No, love and mercy are God's nature. He can't help but be those things. So what is David doing here? He's saying, remember, because he needs to remember. He needs to hear out loud 
God's love. He needs to know that God's love is still a thing, no matter his circumstance, no matter the shame that he feels. He needs to know that God would never abandon him, that God, that he could never lose his hope in God, and God is never losing his hope in him. And he has this moment here where he says, remember, remember your love. I mean, we do this just working, interacting with ourselves. I know I do it all the time. Whenever like me and Steph, my wife, maybe we're in a weird spot or maybe I just wanna be reminded of her love. So many stories, so many conversations, maybe you can relate, start with remember. Like, do you remember? Hey, you remember when we first started dating? That was wild. Do you remember being in the car and just talking all night? Do you remember? Like, do you remember when I proposed? Do you remember that? Do you remember when I said I love you for the first time? It took me like 30 minutes to get it out of my mouth. Do you remember that? Do you remember when we got married, where we stood in front of one another and said, till death do us part? Do you remember that kind of love that we have for one another? Do you remember that our love was so crazy and big that we said, nah, we can't keep this love, just me and you. Let's add a kid. Let's do that. That's the kind of love that we have. We have so much we want to share it. And then we did it. Hey, do you remember then we did it again and had two kids and said, wow, this is incredible. And then do you remember we were either so in love or so crazy that we said, let's do it three times. Let's have three of these things. It's going to be great. Do you remember? And you remember what is there. And these memories of love just come bubbling up like a spring. Like if you want to have some freshness in your life, some freshness in your love and your relationships, just start thinking, remember, and remember this kind of love and see what love does to shame. I mean, we get a picture of what this looks like with Jesus in John chapter 4. Love comes face to face with shame. And there's a woman there that we, that we come to find, and she's from this small village, and she is known for her shame. She is known by the worst thing that she has done or that has been done to her. She's known for having multiple husbands. Husband after husband after husband, and the man she's with now isn't even her husband. And all of this shame has crept in and it has isolated her. It has kept her from everything, from God, from community. She's filled with shame. We get the picture of this because every day people from her village would leave first thing in the morning to go and get water for the day and then return before the sun got out. Not her though. To avoid walking with people, to avoid being reminded of what shame had done to her, she would wait until everyone got back and then she would leave in the middle of the day, tortured under the hot sun, but that was better than dealing with the shame of standing next to people and being silent. And there she is, taking this walk of shame, thirsting for so much more than water. And she gets there to this well, and she's not alone. There's a man sitting there, and his name is Jesus. And she walks up, and he initiates the conversation. Jesus, knowing her, knowing her past, knowing everything that she's done, and everything that has been done to her, he starts a conversation. And he knows that so for so long you've been carrying this shame. For so long, this is how you have been known. But when Jesus meets her in a moment, everything changes. Look at this. Jesus replied. He's talking to her. He said, anyone who drinks this water, the one that you just walked here for, they'll soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. 
it becomes like a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Jesus says, come to me, and what I give you is like a fresh, bubbling spring. There's no room for shame. It can't live here. She carried all of that up to this well, and as soon as she meets Jesus, it's washed away. Like a spring that comes crashing forward, it takes it out. You see, shame is like stagnant water just sitting there, and bacteria and everything that it touches become corrupt. Only a source outside of that can come through and wash all of it away, and that is what Jesus does in this moment. And when he does, everything changes. When shame is washed away, when his spirit comes and fills her, everything changes. Look at the result. I've read this, but this week it just like knocked me over of how big of a deal it is. So she goes back to the village and she tells everyone about who Jesus is. And then they said to the woman, the people of the village, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves, now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. That Jesus, because of who he is, because of how powerful he is, because of his ability to see past all of it and say, I'm not gonna hold that against you, I'm gonna give you my spirit. And once it comes through crashing like a spring, think about where this woman was just hours before, isolated, had no conversations with anyone, was willing to die under the sun than to be reminded that she couldn't have a relationship with anyone. That walk of shame turns into a sprint back into community, a sprint back to say, no, no, I'm not, it's not being held against me anymore. What my past is, it is what it is. I know Jesus now, everything is changing. And she told everyone about a man who had told her everything about herself. And the result was many came to know who Jesus was. Remember, this week, if you wanna add some freshness to your, to your prayer life, or maybe you've never talked to God before in any length of time, just start with this. Jesus, remember, and watch the memories bubble up. Watch his love just remove anything that does not belong there. Just Jesus, remember? Jesus, remember how you knit me together in my mother's womb, do you remember? Jesus, you remember how you know how many hairs are on the top of my head? Jesus, do you remember? Jesus, you remember how you saved that woman at the well and you changed her life? Jesus, do you remember how you died for a sinner like me? Jesus, remember how you said that when I face trials and troubles and when I have enemies, that's not evidence that you don't exist, that I can take heart even in the midst of that because you overcame the world and now because of that, so can I? Jesus, do you remember? I'm telling you, start that conversation and just see where it takes you. See how it changes not only your relationship with Jesus, but how you view yourself and how you allow yourself to be out there and be vulnerable with other people. How now you can be a part of those convictions that God has given you. Now you can be obedient because you know it's not about you. It's about what God has done through you and what he's trying to do and how he can use you and how strong he is and how good he is. That's where David is in the midst of this. And as you see, as he works through all of this, this psalm where he starts crying out, God, take this shame. Don't let this shame overtake me. And then he has this moment of clarity where he says, no, 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 this, this, this is, I'm off here. 
I, I, need, I need a Snickers or something because I'm off here. No, no, what am I thinking? No one who hopes in God will ever be put to shame. And then he walks through what it looks like. Oh, it's so beautiful. I'm reminded of who you are, God, and how much you have done. That as he gets closer to God, the bigger his prayers get. If you notice sandwiched in the middle there was, you know, God, remember your love, remember your grace. He says, don't remember my rebellious ways. Don't remember my sins. Don't remember my history. Now, this is bigger than saying, God, forgive them. He's saying, God, don't even see them. Don't even wipe my slate completely clean. When you think of me, think of yourself. That is a huge prayer, and that is what God offers him. And he doesn't stop there. That as he begins to have, and he's just overwhelmed by this spring, this rushing water that's coming through, he makes this huge prayer. Throughout Psalm 25, it's this personal conversation between David and God, but then it gets bigger than that. He says, no, no, what you're able to do, I see you, God. I know how good you are. I know how powerful you are. And look at his prayer. He says, guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope, Lord, is in you. And here it is. Deliver Israel, O oh God, from all of their troubles. Huge. As he gets going and he sees that God is going to meet him here, he believes that God is for him, that God forgives him. He has these huge prayers. And he says, no, no, don't just stop here with me, God, but all of Israel. And in true God nature, God hears David's prayers. And years later, God would answer this prayer where he prays here, who is gonna deliver Israel? Other translations would say, ransom Israel. Make payment on their behalf. Take them out of this cycle of sin and shame. And like I said, in true God nature, what David prayed, and I'm sure he thought it was the biggest prayer ever, ever deliver all of Israel, God would say, no, you don't even know. I'm gonna send Jesus, and I'm not only gonna deliver all of Israel, I'm gonna deliver all of the world. For all time, this room included, I will deliver everyone because I'm gonna send my son Jesus and he's gonna live as you, among you, and he's gonna live a perfect life. And as he gets to the end of this thing, never sinning once, never experiencing shame because of himself, he would still go and he would be wrongfully arrested, he would be beaten, and then Jesus would go on a walk of shame on our behalf. That's what it was. A walk to be crucified, that was only for the people who were seen as the worst of the worst, the traitors, the enemies. This was a walk of shame, carrying a symbol of sin and shame on his back, and he walked it for us. He walked that, sin, he walked that uh, walk of shame for me so that I wouldn't have to walk out of Blockbuster the way that I did, so I wouldn't have to hold that. He walked that walk of shame for you so that you don't have to walk away from your divorce like that. He walked that walk of shame for you so you don't have to pass that house or that night and be reminded of what happened. He said, no, no, I'm gonna walk this walk once and for all. I'm gonna put an end to shame. And Jesus took that cross all the way up. And as they nailed him to it, as he was dying on our behalf, he used but a few words. And I can't believe some of the words that he used as he's up there. He said, I thirst. 
Jesus, the son of God, said, I thirst. The same one that we just read about who told a woman that if you come to me, you will never thirst again. The one who said, I'm the source of living water. You come to me and you will never thirst again. He made these promises. This is that same Jesus, that same son of God, and now he thirsts. Why? He's filled with our shame, emptied so that he could carry all of that for me and for you. And a little bit later, as he's hanging there, he would say a few more words. Three, it is finished. And as he took his last breath, sin and shame were defeated once and for all. But Jesus would not remain defeated. His death would be short-lived. Three days later, he would rise. Jesus rose and he came back with a message, a message that shame has nothing to do with. It can't even start to begin to understand this kind of love and it wipes it clean. It says, you are not your shame, you are loved. Where shame tries to come in and says, no, 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 you're too flawed, you're too messed up, this is your identity now. Jesus says, no, 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 remember? Remember what I did on the cross, remember how I didn't remain dead but I rose three days later, remember. You're not so flawed that you can't be loved, you're so loved that I was willing to die for you. Where shame tries to come in and says, no, you will never be connected to anyone or anything, especially God. Jesus says, don't believe it for a second. Don't you know? Connected. That you, your body is a temple for the spirit of God to dwell within. I want to be connected with you for always. Whenever you have this thought, when shame comes in to tries to take it from us, to say that we don't have a place, Jesus is saying you do. If it weren't so, would I have went before you and created one? You belong, you will always belong, more than belong. You are seen as family, as sons and daughters of God. You see, where shame says you are the worst thing that you ever done, Jesus says you are the best thing that I ever done, I've ever done. Shame tries to steal our identity, Jesus says take mine. If you walked in here, on a walk of shame, carrying what you've done or what has been done to you, please know you do not have to walk out of here with that. You are not that thing. You are not your divorce. You are not that job that you lost. You are not your addiction. You're not that assault. You're not this current season that you're going in. You are loved. And Jesus is for you. Jesus has taken that. Jesus walked that so you wouldn't have to. First Peter. Chapter two, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, we are healed. Never walk in shame again, but remember. Remember the cross. Remember God's great love for you. Remember who he says you are, not the lies of shame. And what we're gonna do here is so important. I'm gonna pray and then there's gonna be a moment of reflection, a moment to be reminded, not of who you are, what you've done, but who God is and what he's done and who he says you are. 
So in these next few moments after I pray, just be reminded of that. And our prayer is that everyone would walk out of here in the name of Jesus with their head held high, knowing that shame has no place, that Jesus has defeated it once and for all. Pray with me. God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for how David walked through this, this guide for us to walk through. God, the hope that we can have in the Psalms would show us that we can come to you even when we're afraid, even when shame tries to creep in and, and tries to steal what you came to give when it tries to reduce us, when it tries to whisper lies into our ears, that God, we would be reminded, not of what we've done or what's been done to us, but we would be reminded of your great love, of your mercy. We would be reminded of that cross. We would be reminded of you going there on our behalf. We would be reminded that walk of shame that you took so that we would never have to take it. God, we thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' perfect name that we pray, amen.